chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. Seven seals. Six have been opened. And now we come to the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is ready to be opened, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. And he sees, he says, I saw seven angels standing before God. To them were given seven trumpets. So the seventh seal opens seven trumpets. Now what do the seven trumpets do? First of all, broadly, what do trumpets do? They make noise. What do, why do people blow on trumpets? They want to announce something. That's very good. That's one of the broad purposes. What do they announce? They can announce all kinds of things. Triumph, remembrance, celebration, warning. What are these trumpets going to announce? Well, the trumpets, if you look at them, the trumpets blow out words of further troubles upon the earth. The first, second, third, and fourth trumpets blow out the note of warning on the earth. Take a look, for example, at verse 7. It says, The first angel sounded, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood hurled upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned, a third of the grass. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and so forth. And as you walk through them, they're trouble. There's no mistaking that the trumpets release more trouble on the earth. Now, if you have looked through, have you read through Revelation again? Have you read through what these symbols are and what they might be all about? Uh, first of all, I want you to notice that early on it says that in verses 3 and 4, it says that an angel came and stood at the altar and was given incense with the prayers of all the saints. The prayers of the saints went up before God's throne. And then the angel took the censer filled with fire and hurled it upon the earth, releasing thunder, rumblings, lightning, and earthquake. And then the trumpets blow. I take this to refer back to chapter 6, where we have the saints who have been slain calling out for God's judgment upon the earth and asking how long until our blood is avenged. And they call out to God for justice. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute more. But there's a call for justice, a call for vengeance, chapter 6, verse 10, that's then answered by acts of judgment from God. The trumpets are roughly like some of the ten plagues of Egypt. Hail and fire is the first trumpet. Was there hail and fire upon the Egyptians? Remember those plagues? Yes. The sea was hard and became like blood. Did that happen? That's right. The sun was struck. What plague is vaguely like that? Plague of darkness. Absolutely. And so these plagues look kind of like the plagues in the land of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. What did those plagues do? What did they do? What did God mean to accomplish by those plagues in Egypt? Show the power of God. What else? He wanted them to repent. They were called to recognize that God is a living God. It's judgment and a call to repentance. They were both. And in fact, the judgments that we have in this earth are both. Let me give a, a question to you question was around, oh, ten years ago, was asked fairly often, is AIDS 
a plague from God? What's the answer? Is AIDS a judgment of God? How many of you think it is? How many of you think it isn't? How many of you think it is and it isn't? It's a plague from God in the same sense that tuberculosis is, or cancer is, or any other disease you want to mention. Because disease reminds us of our mortality and that we should get right with God because we're going to die. It may be, we might say, more clearly than some others because most people, though not all, get AIDS due to personal sin. But it's not to be singled out especially anymore. It's not really that much different from uh, alcoholism, which also is sin that causes disease, you see. Right? In 1993, there was a flood in the St. Louis area. Was that from God? Was that a warning from God? Was that a judgment from God? How many of you say yes? How many say no? How many say yes and no? Yes and no. If people asked, is this from God? I'd say, yeah, it sure is. Reminds us that nature is not under our control. Did we talk about this? Do you know there's a thing called the Monarch Levee out by Chesterfield near the Missouri River? And they put it up a few years ago. And they said, you know, this land floods all the time. The Missouri River is reckless and dangerous. It's always bursting its banks. Not all this beautiful flat land and we could farm it. We could put businesses in here. Let's just put up a levee. Let's put up a levee that's called the Monarch Levee. It's the king of all levees. This levee will not be breached more than once in a thousand years. It was a thousand year levee. How long did it last? How long did it last? Less than ten years. Right? Is that a warning? That you can't control the world? That God is still God and, and may want to remind us? Yeah, I think it is. Not any differently than anything else that reminds us that God is sovereign. Whenever catastrophe strikes, there was a tornado warning today. And a tornado did touch down just about five miles. But whenever, whenever catastrophe strikes, it reminds us that God is sovereign and that God has justice and God has the power to judge. And that's what's happening here in this section of burning hail, the sea stricken in a burning mountain and rivers uh, afflicted by a falling star and natural resources being destroyed and the sky being stricken in some way. All this is in the language of the woe. The language of the woe is the language of warning. It's the language that says you have time to repent, but you must take advantage of it. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, uh, or near the end of the trumpet description, says this, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, that afflicted a third or a fourth of the you know, sea and the land and the grass and so on, the rest of mankind still did not repent of the work of their hands. That was the point, to get them to repent, to warn them. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or talk, nor did they repent of their murder, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The word of all judgments, of all plagues, is the same. Repent. You're going to die. You're going to face God. Get ready. I don't want to single out AIDS or a flood, but I don't want to deny it. Even as a car accident. When you drive by one, you should say, you know, I too am mortal. People should remember that. It's not that car accidents are some special plague on North Americans and their pride and their luxury, but all catastrophes warn us to consider eternity, as, as do all diseases. Are you with me? 
Are we in agreement? So is eggs a plague from God? In a, in a limited way. In a limited way. Yes or no? In a general way. It's not that you know, God singles out any particular group as most spectacular sinners deserving a special wrath. We're all sinners before God. That's the point. We all need to get right before God. We've already talked, I'm moving rapidly again, we've already talked about uh, the locust plague in chapter 9, and I'm simply going to remind you that the locust plague points out that the plagues do not simply come from God, they also come from Satan, and he delights to bring his plagues on everyone, but God protects his people so they don't receive the worst of it, even if they die, they are protected, and he strikes his own. Satan strikes his own, above all. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 moves to a very different scene. In chapter 10, we have a vision of a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Who does he sound like to you? He comes down from heaven, robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His legs are like the sun. His, sorry, his face is like the sun. His legs are like fiery pillars. Who does he sound like vaguely? Sounds vaguely like Jesus from chapter 1, doesn't he? So this is, some, this is a, a good and great figure of some kind. And I take it to be literally a great angel. One of the great and mighty angels has come. And he comes bearing a scroll. Now this scroll has a message that's sealed up. But there are clues still about its meaning. Uh, one of the clues is... Kind of uh, perversely, we might say. One of the clues is that it's called a mystery. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, that's the seventh trumpet. We've been talking about seven trumpets off the seven seals. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, the word mystery ordinarily in the New Testament means the mystery of the gospel. The revelation, the thing, a mystery is not something that's unsolvable but something that can only be known when God reveals it. That's the meaning of the word mystery. Not, not an inscrutable riddle, but a riddle, a riddle that we couldn't uncover, but God does. So I think that the mystery is the gospel. Now, John is given a scroll to eat. He's not supposed to tell what's on that scroll, um, but he does describe it a little bit in, in verse 10. He has this little scroll... And it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but when he's eaten it, his, tongue, his stomach turns sour. 10.10. 10, 10.11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. There is a little scroll. There's a scroll that another prophet is told to eat in the Bible. And it tastes sweet initially, and then it turns sour. Do you know who it is? It is Ezekiel. That is right. And when Ezekiel gets this scroll... It's from chapter 2, verse 3 to chapter 3, verse 9 of Ezekiel. He is told in this scene that he must take a message to a rebellious nation whom he must not fear. And God will give him words of lament and mourning and woe. And it's on a scroll that he must take and eat, chapter 2, verse 8. When he eats that scroll, it is, just as in Revelation, sweet in his mouth. 3, 3, says. But Israel does not listen to what he has to say. They, they're hard, they're obstinate. And, and he says in chapter 3, verses 4 to 9, Ezekiel, you have to be every bit as hard as they are. They're going to be stubborn, they're going to be as hard as flint. And Ezekiel, you have to be as hard as flint too. 
Because it's your responsibility to prophesy against Israel and warn them of the coming judgment. They won't listen to it, Ezekiel, but you keep on talking. Keep on talking. And then when Jerusalem falls, the way you said it would, then they'll start to listen. And that's when they did listen, because he predicted it, and it happened. They thought Jerusalem couldn't fall. Now, that experience is, we could say, the universal experience of all God's prophets. The prophecy is sweet and sour. It's sweet to know the Word of God. It's sweet because every revelation, even a revelation of woe and warning and judgment and wrath, is still God's truth. It's still revealing God's nature. Did we talk in this class about, sort of, I guess it's my favorite illustration, the drunk driver? Did we talk about that? And here, killed the little child? We talked about that, didn't we? We talked about that. If you have no wrath, a drunken driver kills a little child. If you have no wrath, when a corporate executive who has a fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars and breaks his contract and, you know, tries to pay his people $5 an hour or sends, you know, sends people on the lines and all that sort of thing while they're, you know, getting bonuses and extra $200 million for cutting costs. If that doesn't upset you, I don't think, you know, you quite are, are touching God's nature. God is a God who loves justice, loves mercy. And when, and when there's evil in the world, there is a sweetness even in being with God and understanding God's wrath toward evil. Because it has to do with His purity and His holiness and His justice and His righteousness and His zeal to fulfill His kingdom. And all those things are good. Right? So even a word of judgment has a sweetness to it because it touches on the nature of God and His zeal to set all things right. On the other hand, there's a bitterness to it because it's not pleasant to tell people that they're going to suffer the wrath of God. We love the revelation of God's nature, but we hate saying to people, you're a sinner, you're in trouble, right? And so there's a bitterness. There's also a bitterness when they start to say, well, who are you to say we're unjust? Take a look at yourself. Who, who set you up? And maybe the answer is, well, God did. Oh, really, they say? Prove it. And so there's a bitterness to being a, an agent of God's judgment. Nonetheless, the word must go forward. And the word does go forward. And I take it that chapter 11 describes the same thing in somewhat different ways. In chapter 11, there are two witnesses. I do not take it, for those of you who wonder... I do not take it that these are primarily two literal witnesses that are going to come in the last days. Could there be two great final witnesses at the end of time that will be the sort of last prophets of God? Absolutely. But I think that it's also true that these witnesses are describing everybody who goes out proclaiming the word of God in this sweet, bitter experience of describing the gospel and the judgment. The gospel is sweet, but the word that you can only be saved through the gospel is not sweet to someone who doesn't want, love the gospel. Now, what do we know about these witnesses? We know, first of all, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, that God will give them power. That they will stand before God, and He will give them power. This is an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4, where He sends out two witnesses. Two witnesses. What do two witnesses do? What do they remind us of? Well, they might remind us of the 70 and the 12 
who went out by twos, didn't they? And it might remind us of the principle from the Old Testament that every matter must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Two witnesses going out and testifying. They're wearing sackcloth, which signifies repentance and sorrow due to the message of judgment and woe. And they have the power to shut up the sky, which reminds us of Elijah. gave a sign that God's judgment would come when he closed up the sky. And they have the power to bring plagues, the power over, over the water, which reminds us of Moses. You can even call Moses and Elijah the two greatest prophets of judgment, bringing judgment. And so, today, they're witnesses reminding of God's judgment. They measure the temple. Measuring is, in the Bible, often, again in Zechariah, a sign of protection, of knowing. The temple is known. God knows the temple, and he'll protect his temple. Zechariah chapter 2. The witnesses continue. They're protected by their powers, so their message is proclaimed. But then when they're done, verses 7 to 12 say, uh, they're going to be killed. Maybe we'll read verses 7 to 12. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, that's an unusual city. It's the city of Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. We'll come back to that. For three and a half days, men from every tribe, language, Sorry, people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies, refuse them burial, will gloat over them, celebrate, give gifts, because they tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them, entered them, and they stood up. And uh, verse 13, they went up to heaven, 12, 13, they went up to heaven. And at that time, there was an earthquake. The city collapsed. 7,000 were killed. Now, I am not going to stand here and tell you that I understand everything in this vision, because I don't. But I'm pretty sure I understand a few things about this vision. One thing is that these two men are witnesses of the church. They are lampstands. They are two lampstands, 11.4 says. A lampstand gives light. Jesus talks about a lamp not being hidden. And the lamp represents the church in chapter 1. In general, lamps give light to all things. So they are light givers. They're two witnesses. It signifies completeness. But then after their witness is over, they're attacked, they're killed, their bodies are exposed. Their bodies are disgraced. They're not buried. People are glad that they're dead. They're glad to be done. The world is glad that they don't have to hear about judgment anymore. What is this city? Where do they give their witness? What is this city that gloats over them? Did you hear it? What is this city? It's Sodom. And it's Egypt, and it's, it's the city where Jesus was crucified. That's Jerusalem. You see why I say I take the book of Revelation symbolically? And I'm not real literalistic with things? Because the book, there is no city that's Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. Where, and, and where are the witnesses killed? Well, what would Sodom represent anyway? What is Sodom? Sodom is the city especially known for its sensuality and immorality, its wickedness. 
What's Egypt? The city of the land. It's the city that's a whole country. It's the land of bondage, the land of oppression, the land of mistreatment of the poor, the land of oppression of God's people. If Sodom is the pinnacle of sensuality and self-indulgence in the Bible, then Egypt is the pinnacle of oppression. What would Jerusalem be? It would be the pinnacle of false religiosity, of false spirituality and deadness. All three cities will oppress God's people. The sensual don't want to hear restraint upon their sensuality. The oppressor doesn't want to hear talk about justice and a God who takes care of the, of the needy and the poor. And the religious do not want to hear. The Christians say, I have for you the one way to God. The religious want to say, there are many ways to God. You have your religion, I have my religion. We all have spiritual needs. We solve them in different ways. They don't want to be told there is one way. This is why I say that there's not two literal witnesses, because they're killed in all three cities. Will there possibly, again, be two great final witnesses, two ones that speak to, you know, with great power at the end of time and be persecuted in a special way? Very possibly. But the point is also that, that God's witnesses are always liable to persecution. And, you know, this is actually a theme not just found in Revelation. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 23. I'm going to quote it to you just now. Jesus, when he speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes and their hypocrisy, the Jewish leaders, says, All the righteous blood that has been shed on earth will come against the scribes and the Pharisees. The Jerusalem is guilty of the blood of all the martyrs. Jerusalem is guilty of the blood of all the martyrs. But you know what else? There's yet another city that's guilty of the blood of all the martyrs. Do you know what city that is? It's the city of Babylon. That's what 17.6 in Revelation says. John sees the harlot, representing Babylon there, drunk with the blood of the saints, and he says, in her he sees the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. 18.24 so Babylon is guilty of all the blood, and Jerusalem is guilty of all the blood, and Sodom and Gomorrah is too. Why? Because there is a hidden solidarity between them all. In the last analysis, false religion, oppressive power, and sensuality are all one. They are all mankind shaking their fist against God. Saying, I don't want your rule. I don't want your reign. I don't want your gospel. I want to do things my way. My religion. My pleasure. My power. And don't interfere. And they all agree that God's holy and fearless agents must be stopped. Must be silenced. Now sometimes it's through actual death, but other times it's through, you know, we might say milder means. Sometimes it's by saying, sure, come on, we'll give you a place at the table too. And you can give, you know, you can give your word of judgment while we give our word of inclusiveness. And that's another way of silencing. Somebody here, I don't know, you may be troubled. I think it's important that we stop for a moment and uh, sort of ask the question, is anybody here troubled by all the way I'm talking about judgment so much? Is anybody kind of tired of hearing about judgment, wrath, justice? 
holiness. Is anybody troubled to hear that the saints call out for vengeance? Those who have been slain call out for God's justice. Nobody's troubled. Can I just show you? Can somebody pretend they're troubled so I can show you an overhead? Is anybody troubled? All right, I've got somebody who's troubled. Uh, I would like to uh, just throw something up on the screen for a moment for your uh, consideration. And it's, uh, it's sort of a, a way of, of looking at things. All of God's covenants are one. All of God's covenants are one. But all the covenants don't say exactly the same thing, do they? And some things are more common or more prominent in some covenants than others. To list one that's not up there, the covenant of David is about kingship. If you look at the covenants in the pages of Scripture, it's possible to divide them up or evaluate them or categorize them according to the relative prominence of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness or law, righteousness. Justice. The covenant of Adam, which was more to the forefront, law or grace? Before Adam fell, which was more to the forefront, law or grace? Before he fell, he didn't really need a whole lot of grace, did he? I mean, he had sustaining grace, life itself as a gift. Hear me carefully. There's law and there's grace. There's plenty of both in every covenant. But one or the other can be more prominent, relatively speaking. So grace, saving grace, wasn't needed before Adam fell because he hadn't, you know, he wasn't a sinner. So we could say that, relatively speaking, law, do not touch, was more prominent. All right, how about during the period of Abraham? Which is more prominent, law or grace? What was the law given to Abraham about when he started to be holy and be circumcised? Was that before Abraham was justified, or was it afterwards? It was, it was afterwards. Therefore, which one is more prominent? Grace is more prominent. He just calls Abraham out. Abraham's a pagan. He says, Abraham, I want to give you some promises. After they've been going together for about five or six chapters, that starts in chapter 12, 17, he starts talking about the need to be holy. So grace is more prominent. In the Mosaic Covenant, there's plenty of law, there's plenty of grace. But relatively speaking, which one is more prominent? Law is relatively more prominent. God in His holiness, God regulating behavior and uh, declaring the consequences of covenant violation. In the New Covenant, the covenant of Christ, whatever you want to call it, which is relatively more prominent? There's plenty of both. Because God, there's law. But more prominent is, together, one, two, three, grace. And what about in eternity? Which is more prominent, relatively speaking, law or grace? That's kind of debatable, isn't it? Let's put it to you this way. Do you not see that there is a moment of law that's necessary to open up the eternity of grace? Right? There is a, a need for the judgment day, for the purging of the earth. And there is a, there is a time when it is right to say, Lord, judge now. Remove the evildoers. Avenge the blood of the saints. There is a time. And the book of Revelation is looking at that time. It's looking at the time, very commonly, when 
the evils of this world must come to an end so that the reign of Christ, unblemished, can continue for all eternity. Because evil has to be rooted out. Every evildoer has to be removed. Because heaven is not heaven if there are billions of unbelievers, if Satan is running around. So there has to be a call for judgment. And so we could say, if we could divide up eternity, in a sense, grace is all in eternity. But there has to be this moment, I'll call it, one more moment of law, of the call for justice, before eternity is ushered in. That is why we have so much of a call for vengeance and for justice in the book of Revelation. 